previously on Storyological. <laughs> in Korea, you can have nokcha, and you can have mugwacha, and you can have uh, hongcha, and you can have. Is this going to just turn into you listing Chai. Korean teas? Yeah, it was a long break we took, wasn't it? What did we do on our break? We went away in search of our. Viscera. Our viscera. Yeah. Doing a bit of navel gazing. Is that where the viscera is kept? Right. When you eviscerate someone, you open them at the belly button. Yeah. And you put your hand in. And just tug it out. You pull out the viscera. Mm. And that's very visceral. Right. Exactly. Like that pig in that one story I wrote. Are you familiar with that story, readers? Oh, good. <laughs> good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're familiar with that story. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Gerd, The Girl with Too Many Arms by Zachary Doss. Here's the first paragraph of the story. She grows up hearing all the rumors about her mother's death, about how the girl with too many arms forced her way out of the womb with her many hands and split her mother in half. But they have been taking the measure of her since she was a tiny baby, wondering how so many limbs could pass easily out of the same woman, and they have drawn their own conclusions. The girl with too many arms doesn't think much about it. It is a very short story. It's about three and a half pages. As we read, we learn about Gerd. We learn about her many arms and all the many things that her arms can do. It's a, a quite a talented set of arms. They can do many, many. Uh, wait a minute. They can do many sundry things. That's the word I was thinking of, sundry. Mm. Where does that word come from? It's weird. Sounds like laundry to me. We go to church with her. We learn about the way she views religion. We learn about how in, in this world, in the religion, there are no women with many arms, but there are men with many arms, and they do things like hold up the world. She wonders if they had mothers. Uh, they don't know. They're not part of the story. We learn about all of the things that they say about her, the girl with too many arms. We learn that she does not like to believe the things that people say about her, but she does listen to them, and she does think of herself as a monster, though she describes herself as comfortably a monster. And that tone is interestingly kept throughout. It's there at the end of the first paragraph when the narrator says that she doesn't think about that. Mm. That's a, oh, it's just such a fun writerly thing to do. Nothing tells you more about what a character's thinking than to tell us what they're not thinking about. It's like, it's like standing in front of it being, don't look over here, don't look over here, and waving your hands mightily. And so I found that the, the tone of the story, it's such a, a lovely mixture of cynical and sweet. I know it's, it has a vision of the world that I think of as both whimsical and tragic and not, in the end, without hope. The girl with too many arms is comfortably a monster. That was one of the lines that jumped out at me in this. I really loved how it was written and that kind of tone. It's kind of light but dark. It's like, it's like balsamic vinegar, you know? It's sort of sweet but sharp at the same time. I'm always mistrustful when people or characters even say, oh yeah, I'm comfortable with this uh, egregious thing, this monstrosity that I am. You know, it makes me think that it actually matters a great deal to them that people call them monster. And I love that they, I, um, I love how he's done that. How, again, how he's pointed that, that this is her experience by, by giving us only her denial he has very 
easily mapped out the space that she lives in that that this is her only option you know that she is a kid in the playground who is being yelled at and called names and her only defense is to is to build a wall out of those names is to is to kind of take them into herself and it made me feel so gutted for her that that she would kind of draw this into her identity and accept this name from other people. By having the story so much rooted in her denying things, it allows so much more to happen with the character Mm -hmm. than you might expect in three pages. Right. I have come across a lot of stories like this of late. A lot of stories uh, that are a bit fably, a bit allegorical, Mm -hmm. very much told in summary, almost no dialogue, full of scenes that are more seamless than mm. scenic. A lot of that is what reminds me of some Amy Binder. Amy Binder's stories often feel a bit allegorical. Sometimes they feel drifty, like they just kind of pass by without ever settling down into something. But the ones that are like what I just described, that are a bit less with the dialogue, less with scene, often aren't my favorite. And I thought, why? And I was like, oh, well, the why is often those stories lose drama. Mm-hmm. There's nothing dramatic or tense about them. And I thought, well, why do I love drama? It's not just because it's dramatic. It's because by forcing characters and forcing stories to have arguments, conflicts, it forces you to engage with otherness, with other ideas, with something other than what your point is. And I had read a story recently where it was so settled in its point of view, in the the point of its allegory, mm-hmm. I was infuriated by the end. I was just so angry. It just, the fact that I kind of agreed with it only infuriated me more because it was, it was hearing something I agreed and done in a way that it feels icky to me in that way that I think of stories as kind of moral engines, engines of mm. empathy. It, right, felt... it becomes kind of didactic if there's no, if it's so settled. In this story, because she's in denial, it means that the drama is inherent in her trying to come to terms, both with what people say about her, but the, as you put it, the walls and the perception she has, not just of herself and not just of her place in the world, but also of her mom. Mm. There's, there's a relationship built there in the stories that are told about her mom and how she died that leads us into the girl with too many arms going down into this mausoleum where her mom is buried and where there's this image that she calls a false image of her mom in this kind of idyllic two-armed way. Mm. And she's just so certain and wants to believe that her mom has too many arms. And yet I feel such conflict in it because I could imagine, this is me imagining into the story, but there's so much space to imagine that if her mom had too many arms, that would be beautiful, but also it'd be Like, it's her mom's fault that she has too many arms. It Mm -hmm. wasn't a fluke of nature. Like, this came from me. And that's that's part of why this story works so well for me. Because even without what look like scenes, there, there are, there's so much drama in it. Right. It carries that yearning to understand more about where she's come from. More about her mother, who she was, how many exact arms did she have? <laughs> no, not not exactly that, but but yeah, that that maternal relationship that can never be, I guess, consummated in a non-sexual way. Like the, I don't know what you call it when a relationship is allowed to to bloom, fulfilled, fulfilled. Yes, yeah. that's a good word for it. 
Um, and I thought, I, <laughs> the thing that came to my mind when I read this is Dolly Parton's song, The Coat of Many Colors. And it's about this kid whose mom makes them a coat out of rags and they think they have this beautiful thing and they're so proud of it and they take it to school and they are bullied mercilessly for it. Now, it may be that Gerd's arms are some kind of gift. It may be that they are some kind of curse. Whatever, however they arrived with her, there's something about that... um, uh, about that uncertainty of their origin that must be almost worse than the arms themselves. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like, how did these arrive in my life? Why am I burdened with them? Is it that, that uncertainty drives such an interesting kind of conflict for her? So I found this story because Zachary Doss died earlier this year mm. as a very young person. And the story came across... Uh, my Twitter feed in a a kind of uh, a tumult of sorrow and celebration. And I read it and I read a bunch of his stories and they are all very wonderful. And I did wonder when I read it, maybe this story partly feels so big because this is how I found it. Mm. Uh, and that's part of it. But it's also exactly what you were saying about her drive to know where she came from. This story in its three pages about a girl with too many arms that kind of flops around and then goes to a tomb reminded me of Star Wars. Uh, because it does something that oh, Star Wars... it's been War- months since you've been it's, able to make a, uh, a Star Wars reference uh, on Mike. Um, it has been a long time. Uh, because he does something that feels very magical to me and isn't done a lot, which is he's taken something that feels like it's a, a fairy tale kind of folksy thing. Mm. And he's pushed it away, let's say, from the Brothers Grimm, from the whimsy, mm. into myth, into questions of parentage and power, those things that you know Star Wars is about. People call it a fairy tale with laser swords. And the thing that makes it mythic is the masked father, is mm. the where did I come from? Where does my power come from? Am I good? Am I bad? I don't know. And that's, that's just neatly tied up in this story in a very pleasant tie, you know, not, mm. not a simple tie, a knotted tie that, that the story understands it can't unknot. It can only try to show you all the intricate ways it's wound up in this few mm. scenes. Which uh, is what makes it so much better than that uh, Dolly Parton song, because that is a sweet <laughs> song. It is a sad song. It makes yeah. me cry when I hear it. Yeah. But there's no, there's no conflict or misunderstanding in what that relationship is, how this coat came to be. There's this conflict in the kid about, my God, I've been, my mom has made this thing for me and now I feel like a terrible person for having it. But the deeper conflict of origin, I can't believe Dolly Parton doesn't address that. Um, After I finished it and thinking about how much I loved it and thinking about a lot of my favorite stories, uh, stories like Amelie or Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, I feel like at some point in the show, when I say things like that, I should list short stories <laughs> and not movies. But anyway, um, and I, I thought about it, and this story shared something with a lot of stories I love, which is we talked about it grappling with origin. Where did I come from? But it also feels like it's grappling with how to wake up to mm-hmm. what's what's really in the world. I'm I'm really in a place right now where 
I don't think just because we talk about stories all the time, but because of what's happening in the world outside, it feels like people are constantly at war to make their story the story that is real. They're, they're, they're not just their version of reality, but their explanation of why reality right. is the way it is. Right. Sometimes I see people talking about it as like creating false dichotomies or false binaries. Like, I do not agree with your version of, of the truth. My version of the truth is real. You and I have talked recently about this feeling that in math, there's a, an idea that you get a bunch of data points and then you do linear regression or some other kind of method to fit a line to those points. Mm. And... Like that's so much of what stories are is just a way to fit a line to a bunch of scattered, meaningless points. Uh, and yet some lines are better than others, not because <laughs> they're necessarily truer, but because what they make us do to each other, how they make us act to each other, sometimes feels like the only thing that you can judge a story on, which isn't doesn't sound great to scientists. It doesn't sound great to a lot of people, but sometimes, you know, it's just in your chest. Mm -hmm. You're like, I want stories that make me kinder. I want right. stories that make me healthier. That's I why want... you need not just science, but ethics. Because science might tell you what happens, but yeah. ethics kind of tell you what you should do with that. My pick this week is The Thankless Child by Daniel Mallory Ortberg from his collection... Uh, the Merry Spinster, which came out earlier this year. This is a story about three girls, Paul, Goma and Robin and their godmother, a uh, household witch. She joins the home after the father's second wife has had Goma and Robin. And this is the story of her exacting control over the the existence and life and days and desires of those three girls. In structure, it is in most part a Cinderella story, but there is a fundamentally different choice that Daniel has made, which I think gives it such a deeper interest and conflict. And that is, in a typical Cinderella story, the stepmother and stepsisters are evil things who persecute Cinderella and rush off to the ball without her. And the godmother is the one who rescues her. But in this story, in Daniel's version, he's chosen to make the godmother both the oppressor and the benefactor. And in doing that, he's created this kind of deep conflict inside of Paul, the, the daughter who comes in for the most part of the abuse. You know, she not only makes Paul drink salt water until she throws up, but it's also the godmother who conjures the clothes to send her to the party. And in creating both of these roles inside of a single character, it really twists the knife of the pain for that person. Well, I, I, I sometimes get annoyed at fairy tales that seem too simple. You're like, Cinderella, you have a shit life. Why the hell are you staying to be persecuted every day by these people? She's a minor. Run She's away. Life on the street would be better. Oh, maybe not. But you know what, what I mean? It's the, the simplistic dealing with good and evil how characters can only embody one or the other becomes uh, you know like a sugary drink it's sort of it's sort of unsatisfying after a little bit whereas this choice makes you understand the anguish of how it must be for Paul in this environment living in this state of hope and fear at all times first I have to I think I have to stick up for fairy tales a bit Fairy tales, like in the in the old sense, are not not simple or sugary. They're 
inexplicable violent nonsense like what you're <laughs> right, describing is the disney, disney movies yeah. like disney's versions of cinderella like it kind of doesn't feel right to me to say this is a cinderella story like it is cinderella like you know it's a retelling of cinderella that's been twisted you know cinderella always made me kind of feel sick just the idea of when people say cinderella stories because it feels you know, say, you know, say, imagine you grow up a sensitive boy with that complex that you want some princess to come save you versus the inverse of being a princess mm-hmm. waiting. Um, Cinderella stories, as we understand them, like you describe the sugary sweet Disney versions, reinforce a kind of passive agentless way of living life where you suffer, things are bad, but at some point some magical person will come save you. And Cinderella amazingly compounds it. And and maybe that's what makes it so popular. Not like no, not only will some magical person come into your life because you're a good suffering person, mm-hmm. but they will magic you into a better, more awesome person that then someone else who has a penis will approve of, and then they will complete the rescue. Yeah. Uh, and right, that's very popular and very sickening. Mm. I'm fairly certain the old fairy tale with its chopping off of feet and its bloody stumps of legs, I think has in it the darkness of the story. And that's what I loved about Daniel's choice, but exactly the choice you said. That's what brings the darkness back by making the godmother the person that is the font of magic and the font of oppression. It does the inexplicable fairy tale magic where you could totally read it as a wonderful evocation of the way any kind of governing hegemonic system works like patriarchy or any any system that doesn't care about who you are Mm. it cares about demanding that you need the approval of its ruling order because that need of approval reinforces its sense of control and ah yeah it's fantastic the alternate universe that you mentioned i found fascinating like the just the tone of Daniel's writing is that he, you know, he flickers between um, kind of classic fable style language, a classic, um, a classic fairy tale tone, but then introduces um, backup generators or neurotoxins or other more modern concepts that, that just kind of serve to give it these little jolts of energy and that that really make the agrarian setting of this family sparkle for me. And really, like, I love how it hints towards some of the godmother's magic actually being science. The fact that she can name a thousand neurotoxins. Uh, And we're going to read the paragraph where he describes the godmother. Mm -hmm. The godmother could read and write a little when the situation called for it. (laughs) Chris is showing me he's outlined the same paragraph. She could walk in the noonday sun without fainting, commission deacons, haggle with a grocer, perform minor miracles, turn a dog into a man for upward of three hours, cast out territorial spirits, slaughter a chicken without spilling a drop of blood, initiate mysteries, and she could name over 1,000 neurotoxins. She made all her own clothing, and the children's too, and she was neither bent nor stooped with age. The garden, since she began to tend it, produced both onions and cabbage and several other edible things beside and no birds ever landed in it and the oh god i really love that paragraph of writing the rhythm the majesty the beauty the character it describes the way it 
outlines the world as well as the character that sits inside it 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 leaves me joyous yeah right and like the the majesty the listingness of it conveys to you a sense that this is probably a litany that these children have learned about their godmother you know about Mm. all of the wonderful things that she can do all of the things they should be grateful for uh you mentioned earlier that maybe it kind of hints that uh some of the stuff she does is science and one i thought that was interesting because i i I didn't read it as in any way meaning that one was real and the other wasn't, you know, that like there was science and actually the magic isn't real. But it that idea kind of feeds into something I did think about, which is the part of the inexplicableness of the story. There is a gender fuckery going on and there is a scientifical magicalness fuckery going on that has no explanation that feels a bit as you read it it can feel that you've been dropped into a middle of a novel where presumably they've set up all this before (laughs) at some point uh but you didn't get it uh and yet that's that's the way fairy tales should feel because Mm. that awakens the sense of life and so the the mixing like the paragraph you said and a few other places for example loaves of bread do fall out of a tree soap does magically fall out of a tree and paul brings it home and the godmother is like oh you got those from your dead mother because Paul did. Uh, and it's the like, dead that mother means that, that lives in the, whose spirit lives in the tree. Right, which I feel like what, from what Alyssa told me about how her story was based on Cinderella because it had a, a magical bush, maybe that's really in the fairy tale. I don't remember it because it wasn't a part of Disney and I haven't read the fairy tale recently, but <laughs> let's just take it as written magical trees. I wonder part if of it's Cinderella. A, like a major trope because there's one, there's a tree like that in, in the Bible. Over. Yeah, it's a in... bush and it burns and it talks. No, go ahead. Yes. There's a tree like that in Naomi Novik's uh, Spinning Silver. Oh, right. And all that gets mixed with mentions of de-icing the highways. Yes. Um, <laughs> so there are highways with cars in this world. That's great. And fairy tales are often thought of as for children. They're for everyone, clearly. But there is something to like the way Daniel has written here that feels childish not in a bad way just in the sense that your brain hasn't settled on these are the patterns that are real and i've put everything in their category and so this is this Mm. like the way a vacuum cleaner works and the fact that your dad shows up at the end of the day out of nowhere it's all it's all magical right when you're a when you're a kid that's just the way things happen nothing none of it gets an explanation is that what you mean kind of but no because you don't need it like when a kid makes up a story and you play along and they're like, okay, this vacuum cleaner is a witch's broom. And then we're going to fly over here. And then we're, we're going to go into the lab and we're going to make, um, we're going to make this die. And when we throw it on the burglars, then we'll know it's them. <laughs> uh, I mean, they don't, they don't fuck, they don't need that to make sense in the way a dumb adult needs it yeah. to make sense. Because they'd be like, but you're mixing how can you go into a lab on a magic broom? That doesn't make any sense. But of course, the kid already knows magic exists. Like it's just not not in the. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. yes. You don't you, you don't need to separate them. They're, That's two, they're, they're two truths that aren't pitched against each other. They're two ways of fitting together the dots that tell two different stories. Neither one of which is more real than the other. Mm-hmm. Unless you define reality in a scientific way, but then that's cheating. <laughs> that's playing sides. And there's no happy ending for Paul, although she escapes to her marriage. She's discussing with her partner, you know, who will wife and who will husband, and okay, they're both trained in each one, and it seems it seems like it's going to be this amazing equitable partnership. 
But then the godmother stomps over the horizon and Paul knows that this is a woman who can read and write a little. She can walk in the noonday sun and you get that invocation again about this long paragraph about who the godmother is to Paul and the family. And, and with that, you feel the dread build up and the knowledge that she hasn't escaped. And the godmother will join this household as well and continue to exert her power. And to me, the tragic thing isn't that the godmother comes along. It's, it's incorporated and, and to me, like telling the incorporated and how Daniel ends the story, it doesn't end with the invocation. It ends with Paul feeling sick. Their, their body's feeling prickly. They're feeling sick. And you can, and in the British sense, you can feel sick coming up in their throat. You know, you can mm-hmm. feel like they're going to vomit. And they swallow it down and they, and they say to their husband, wife, uh, really, they say to everyone, there's only their only husband, wife there, but they say to the whole world, oh, I'm sorry, I'm all right. Yeah, everything's going to be fine. Paul, in, in defending themselves against the godmother and to a certain extent shutting themselves off from what they're feeling, mm. has really just absorbed the godmother's presence. It's The fact that the godmother appears to me isn't even an act of the godmother. It's an act of the story telling us of the truth of Paul and that in trying to survive the godmother... Paul is just endlessly haunted by the godmother because she's split. Once you hide a part of yourself from yourself, Mm. that part of yourself will haunt you forever and you will never be happy because you're hidden. You're gone. I think that's the perfect place to end it. Thanks for listening, readers. We didn't, as we usually don't, uh, talk about all of the stories that exist. Yeah, or even all of the things about these two amazing stories. So... If you have recommendations for us, we would love to hear them. And you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. I believe Emma's forgotten how this works. (laughs) I'm totally, I'm so rusty. Oh my goodness. Uh... You can find and like us on Facebook if you haven't deleted it yet because of your fears of its omnipresent hegemonic mindless tentacly existence (laughs) we're really selling that facebook page (laughs) if you have enjoyed this episode and we hope you have you can find us on apple podcasts and leave us a review as that helps other people find us uh and if you don't approve of itunes in some way similar maybe to the way you don't approve of facebook maybe you approve of patreon we have one of those uh you can support us at one or two or three dollars a month if you support us at three dollars a month you will receive each month a newsletter from me in which i review some amount of everything it's called chris reviews everything it's totally a lie but i review everything that i care about that month and if you become a patron this month you can go back and have a look at last month's uh review of everything which was a photo essay about our time in france which contains many things of beauty for everything else storylogical related to find past episodes, to find interviews we've done with Alyssa Wong or Sophia Samatar. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day say to us, I was listening to this interview with Alyssa Wong. I was like, who is this person? Where can I read her stories? And I thought, mm, we're, we know we're expanding the audience of these Amazing. people, bringing them together. Uh, maybe I should respond. Maybe we should respond to them on the Twitter and say, good. Anyway, for that, all of that, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading.
We have a Korean store now. It's called Oseo. 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 Disappointingly, they don't actually say that when you enter the store, yeah. as they should, being a Korean store. And so what hap- that's not what happens when you walk into a Korean store every True. time. When you is walk it? into a family mart, they say Oseo. Really, every time. Yes, just like when you walk into a, a French cafe, they say bonjour. It doesn't. It doesn't actually cost anything to just say hello when people walk in. I know it doesn't cost anything, but like to me, it's such a different right way of being as when you walk into a, a shop in London, and if somebody says hi as I walk into a clothes shop, particularly, I I feel like hmm. I feel like they they do it to say I've got my eye on you. Don't steal anything. Well, I I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you go in a Japanese restaurant and they say, uh, well, actually, they say the Japanese word for welcome and I forgot what it is. Shimasen. That's what it is. Mm. Shimasen. Anthony Bourdain mentions that in his book. He's like, it's really, um, I don't remember exactly what he says about it, but he comments it about it, like it being sort of somewhat um, frenzied kind of feeling that everybody is compelled to do it and then say thank you goodbye as you as you leave like it's sort of oppressive all right let's see what do i do i hit stop